So I had dinner with Ruth Messenger on Thursday night. You may know that Ruth served on the New York City Council for 11 years from 1978 to 1989, and then was Manhattan Borough President for eight years from 1990 to 1998, and then led AGWS, American Jewish World Service for 18 years, and now has four jobs apparently, and is a general trailblazer and badass of the Jewish world. So we got to talking about moral courage, and in particular, its indispensable function in rabbinic leadership and Jewish leadership more broadly. And Ruth told me two stories that I knew I'd want to share with you this morning. Story number one, we might take for granted the fact that New York state protects a woman's right to an abortion, but that right came from one last minute act of moral courage. George M. Michaels was a Jewish legislator representing a heavily Catholic district when efforts to legalize abortion in New York came to a head in April of 1970, just before Passover. Bonnie Eisner reported the story in the foreword in June of this year, you might've seen it. He was raised in Queens, the son of Polish immigrants who were secular Jews. And he moved to Auburn, New York, a small city in the Finger Lakes region after marrying his college sweetheart. He'd served in the New York State Assembly for 10 years by 1970 when this bill to legalize abortion up to 24 weeks of pregnancy came up for a vote. A more liberal version of the bill without the 24 week limit had passed in the state Senate on March 18th with bipartisan support, but the assembly failed to pass it. And Michaels voted against it at the request of the Cayuga County Democratic Party, even though he personally supported giving women the right to choose, he was under pressure not to vote for it. The bill's primary sponsor, a Republican named Constance Cook, managed to get another vote on the bill on April 9th using a parliamentary procedure. The Catholic Church, who had been caught off guard by the first vote, ramped up opposition and were uh, were actually priests and nuns were pacing the chamber floor as the bill was up for consideration. During hours of contentious emotional debate, legislators spoke about their personal convictions and the pressures they faced from constituents and from the church. A few members switched their votes. The bill needed 76 votes to pass and was about to go down in defeat with an even 74 in favor and 74 against. Now Michaels, who'd been among those voting, he was on the list against, he was a no vote. But as the roll call was ending, he asked to change his vote. And he said, if I'm ever gonna have peace in my family, I cannot go back to them on the first night of Passover and tell them that George Michaels defeated this bill. He, he said, I fully appreciate that this is the termination of my career. He was pale and he was fighting back tears and TV cameras turned on him. The New York Times reported that he sobbed as he told the chamber about the tension in his family, including his son, a rabbinical student at HUC in Cincinnati, who begged him not to be the one to defeat the bill. I must be, I must keep peace in my family, he said. 10 days after the vote on April 19th, members of the Cayuga County Democratic Committee withdrew their endorsement of Michaels and he lost his primary. Friends whom he and his wife had known for decades turned on them. His law firm of 40 years disbanded. The next year, the assembly voted to repeal the abortion law, but gratefully, Governor Nelson Rockefeller vetoed that bill. In 1973, when Roe v. Wade was decided by the Supreme Court, the, 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 the law became less important as the right to abortion before 24 weeks was protected nationwide. 
But now that it's been overturned, it's Michael's vote, which is the reason why we have abortion rights in New York State. When he died in 1992 at age 82, the Times in its obituary called him the legislator who changed abortion law. New York became then and continues to be now a haven for women seeking safe and legal abortions. Story number two. Cyril Harris was an Orthodox rabbi who grew up in Scotland and then became a rabbi at a synagogue in London. Several years into his career, the powers of the, of the Orthodox community assigned him to become the chief rabbi of South Africa. This was during apartheid. And it extended to the time when Nelson Mandela came out of prison and became prime minister and decreed the end of apartheid and ordered the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In South Africa, Rabbi Harris regularly spoke out in support of Mandela and took positions against apartheid and for the new government that often made the South African Jewish Board of Deputies, the lay leadership body, anxious. They often opposed what he was doing. Their style had been to lay low and not comment on government or political issues. Mandela came to call Harris my rabbi and to thank him regularly for sticking his neck out against often the wishes of the community. Mandela then organized a truth, when he organized the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to bring the country back together, he asked faith leaders to speak at a meeting of the commission on television. Rabbi Harris testified saying that the white, that while the Jewish community did not initiate apartheid and while many Jews did not agree with it, Nevertheless, quote, most members of the Jewish community benefited in one way or another from apartheid. It is possible and indeed probable that our personal circumstances are products of apartheid, he said. And if we are responsible for this country's past, then we are, of course, responsible for its future. He continued, it's insufficient to stand apart from violations of human rights and disassociation is inadequate where vocal protest is urgently called for and positive steps must be taken to rectify injustice. So the Jewish community in South Africa confesses here to a collective failure to protest against apartheid. The entire thrust of Jewish moral teachings, together with the essential lesson of Jewish historical experience as the most consistent victim in the world should have moved the community to do everything possible to oppose apartheid. Distancing oneself from the anguished cry of the majority and myopically pursuing one's own interests can never be morally justified. Then he quoted Heschel, indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. It is more universal, more contagious, more dangerous. A silent justification, indifference makes possible an evil erupting as an exception becoming the rule and being in turn accepted. He ended, because of the evil in, of indifference, which so many in the Jewish community possessed, we, confessed that, we confess that sin today before this commission and we ask forgiveness for it. It is not that in spite of the past, we must do better, but because of the past, we must do better. The self-respect of every member of the Jewish community is at stake in this issue more than any other, for it's always been an established principle that the distinctive honor of being Jewish carries with it a corresponding responsibility. The doctrine of the chosen people does not imply the, the conferment of special privileges, rather the imposition of, of extra obligation. We are chosen for duty, however uncomfortable, chosen to be an example of good, whatever the circumstances. I ask for a real identification with suffering and degradation, for a sharing with underprivileged of the blessings we enjoy. If anyone cries in the beloved country, let it never be our fault. Let it not be due to us. This week's Parsha opens with an act of moral courage. We find ourselves in Egypt. Joseph is Pharaoh's vizier, responsible for all food distribution in the region. 
appearing to be an Egyptian. His brothers stand before him seeking food, unaware that they are speaking to Joseph. He has tried them. He has tested them by imprisoning their brother Shimon and threatening to imprison and enslave their brother Benjamin. Judah had promised Jacob, their father, that no harm would come to Benjamin. And now he is confronting his, this Egyptian high official to protect his baby brother, offering, begging to be enslaved in his place. Judah tells the Egyptian official about the loss of a brother, about the grief of their father, about the bond between their father and their youngest brother, Benjamin, a bond the severance of which would end their father's life. Describing it, Judah says these words. His own life is bound up in his, or his soul is tied to his soul. And then he says, which you would translate as, for your servant, he's speaking about himself in the third person, has pledged himself for the boy. In other words, I have pledged myself for my brother. Arav, the word pledged here, to pledge, to guarantee, also means to mix together, to intermingle. Erev, evening, is the mixing of light and dark, of day and night. What it is to pledge oneself is to recognize one's mixing in with the other, one's interconnection. Finally, Judah says, therefore, please let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father unless the boy is with me? Let me not be witness to the woe that would overtake my father. This act by Judah not only saves his brother Benjamin from slavery, not only breaks down Joseph's walls, leading to his shocking self-revelation, not only reunites the brothers in love and weeping, not only restores Joseph to his father Jacob, not only provides a new future for the whole family in Egypt, but it answers Cain's ultimate question. A question that has reverberated throughout the book of Genesis from the first human beings to the last generation of the book. It is a question that has plagued every set of brothers, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. Until Judah turns the tide, ends the pattern by saying, yes, indeed, I am my brother's keeper. And when we see that Joseph's sons Ephraim and Menashe accept their moment of blessing without jealousy or strife, we know that Judah's act of moral courage opened up the possibility of peace and responsibility for all future generations. In all three of these stories, we see that, the mor that moral courage is rooted in the recognition of interconnectedness, in our souls being bound up with one another's. George Michaels feels bound to his son, the rabbi, his daughter-in-law, the social worker, his baby granddaughter, such that he's willing to end his career to do the right thing. It was Rabbi Cyril Harris feeling bound to Black South Africans, just that he was willing to buck the lay leadership of the South African Jewish community and speak truth about the sin of complicity and silence. It was Judah feeling bound to his father and to his brother and to their tie with one another that allowed him to put his own life on the line to save them both. It is interesting that it was Judah who understood this interconnectedness, this nafsho kishura v'nafsho. Rabbi Art Green points out that Judah's name, Yehuda, not only means gratitude, but also contains the word hod, which is the sefirah, or the aspect of divine energy, that is humility. It requires humility to see that we are interrelated, interdependent, 
bound up with one another, that none of us are free until all of us are free, that I am because you are. It's a worldview in which no one is at the center or all of us are. Looking back at 2022 with the lens of moral courage, we can see many moments when it was present and many when it was absent. If the last decade has taught us anything, it is that every leader, every citizen, every human being, every Jew has a role to play, a responsibility and a tremendous power in demonstrating this essential quality. May 2023 be a year in which we all grow in our capacity to be moral and to be courageous. Happy New Year. Shabbat Shalom.